0: Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our
1: relationship with God. Please open to Acts chapter 17. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 17. A little background. The book of Acts was written by the Apostle Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And it records a lot of things. It records the establishment of the early church, really, and the spreading of the Gospel to the known world by those who were chosen by God and empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul was one of those chosen men. Uh, he was used by God to spread the gospel by way of his missionary journeys. It also records uh, Saul of Tarsus's com- conversion in Acts chapter 9, who became the Apostle Paul. So we see that uh, event take place. So he shared the gospel by way of these journeys, and he would share with the residents of the city or the region that he would go to. And sometimes he would stay for weeks And he would establish a local church there, and then he would move on to another place as directed and led by the Holy Spirit. The early verses in chapter 17 talk about his journeys through Thessalonica and Berea. And each time he came, it's recorded that he would find a local synagogue, a place to teach, and teach them about Jesus, and some would get saved because of his teaching, uh, and others would not. Uh, remember, the synagogues had the, uh, the local Jewish congregation at the time, but remember, the first century Christians were mostly Jews who came out of Ju- Judaism and re- recognized Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So he would go into the synagogues, and he would teach them about Jesus. And some might not have been convinced of the things that Paul was saying, and sometimes they would stir up violence against Paul and against his fellow workers in the ministry. And sometimes they would drive them out of the city. Um, this happened while they were in Berea. And fearing for Paul's life, the other believers there convinced Paul to move on, to leave. Um, so he made his way to Athens. Uh, the, his companions remained back at Berea for a while to continue the work that was started there. So we arrive here in the city of Athens. Athens was named for the goddess Athena, and the crown jewel of this city was the Parthenon. And the Parthenon was on this Acropolis, which was the site of many buildings and statues that were dedicated to the many gods that the Greeks worshipped at that time. It was built on a highly a high rocky outcrop above the main city of Athens i don't know if there's an image there of the of the acropolis it kind of shows you the buildings there the first building up on top is the parthenon and then there's a temple of nike athena nike which is uh, down in the right hand corner there and there's other statues you can see the statue of athena in the center there And you can't see the detail on this, but there are many other statues throughout this Acropolis. Athens, in its prime, which was the 4th and 5th century BC, was really the greatest city in the world. Um, Maybe has never been equaled since then. The art, the literature, the architecture, the philosophies that existed in those years really has never been matched by any other place um, since then, it was home to the, some of the greatest minds who ever lived, some of the most influential philosophers, poets, and statesmen in history. Uh, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle taught in universities here in Athens, and their students went, went around and espoused their philosophies to all the local residents and anywhere they went, actually. So Paul now arrives in Athens after kind of being driven out of Berea, and he was probably waiting for his other companions to arrive, because um, in verse 16 it tells us now Paul now while Paul waited for them, the other the, his other missionary partners at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. So Paul did what. Most people would do when they arrive in Athens. He went sightseeing. And uh, he looked around. He he traveled around the city. And one thing made a great impression on Paul. But it wasn't the beautiful architecture or these beautiful buildings or the art or the literature uh, or any of that. It wasn't the great cultural and intellectual centers that they had there in Athens. It wasn't that the fact that Great men like Plato and Aristotle once walked those same streets. That didn't impress Paul. One thing impressed him, and that was that it was a great city filled with many idols. We're going to show an image here of the idols. So you can see some of them there on the bottom of the screen, and you can see the big uh, statue of Athena up top. And all those little things that you can see, maybe a little Pieces of, those were mostly statues. And then on each of the columns were more figures of other gods. So Paul walks through Athens and he would have seen, certainly he would have gone to the Acropolis, but even in the city proper, he would have seen statues and altars to various gods. And on the street uh, where he would maybe travel and walk in front of every house, there was another pillar with a bust of another god like Hermes, it's been estimated that at that time there were over 30,000 public statues in Athens and many more private ones in people's homes. And think about this. At the time that Paul visited, there were only 10,000 residents in the city of Athens, but they had 30,000 idols in the city. One historian said it was easier to find a God than a man in the city of Athens. That's how it was back then. But as Paul walked through the city, he wasn't impressed with the culture and the architecture and art. Rather, he was irritated, really, by their idolatry. It says it was, his spirit was provoked within him. That gives us the sense that he was irritated, stirred up. He was aroused within him, within his spirit. That Greek word paroxuno means to stir up within. Men and women, brothers and sisters, when we look at the world around us, are we stirred up? Are we a, a little bit aroused with our spirit within us at what is going on in the world around us. The rejection of God, the abundance of hate. Do we get stirred up? Does our spirit get provoked when we see a culture given over to idols? Now, we don't see 30,000 statues of gods as we walk around our cities. But power, fame, money. Do we idolize sports figures or entertainers? Or even Christian artists or preachers? Do we worship them sometimes above God? Who or what gods do we exalt today? And just because people don't make statues or build temples doesn't mean that they don't worship things other than God. So Paul moves through the city here and he sees, kind of sees this cloud of idolatry that hung over Athens at that time and it blotted out the truth, and it plunged people into darkness. So he was stirred up in his spirit. He was compelled to preach the gospel, knowing that this was the only thing that could save them from the darkness that was all around them. That was the light of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ. And there were three groups that Paul preached to. When he went to Athens, in verse seventeen, it speaks about this first group that he went to preach to; those were who were in the synagogue. He says, "Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers." So it was his custom, as we saw in Thessalonica and Berea and the other accounts, when Paul went into a city, he first found the um, the, the synagogue, which was where they gathered um, for religious discussion and Bible studies, and his audience in the synagogue was usually what you would call a religious group, a group of religious people. But think about the fact that there was a synagogue here, but the city all around them was given over to idols. How much, really, how much real influence did they have for the culture around them? What benefit is it if Christians gather together and gain more and more knowledge of God and of the scriptures, but never export it outside of the church walls. The gospel is meant to save people, but it's also meant to change people. Jesus was constantly at odds with the religious leaders of his time because they were mostly self-righteous hypocrites. And... He always seemed to have a problem more with the religious leaders than anyone else. And we need to be careful, Christians, that the world doesn't look at us as self-righteous hypocrites, because our message will never be received by them. We need to be sure that we're not focusing so much on our own religiosity that we forget that there's a vital message that we have to deliver to a lost world. A hopeless world. The Apostle Paul, when he was given the qualifications of a leader in the local church, one of them was to have a good reputation among those who are outside the church. It's great to have a good reputation to those who are inside the church, but what do people think about you when you walk out the doors? In 1 Timothy 3 7, He he, he spoke to Timothy and he said, moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So there's this idea that yes, we are like-minded when we gather together for the most part, but when we go outside of these doors, do we bring the message of hope to a lost world? And then Paul went on and continued to preach and now he went to a group of um, people that were in the marketplace. Verse 17 says, And in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So this is a marketplace um, not, very, not really similar to what we would see in a strip mall or anything like that. This was, this was kind of the gathering place uh, for everyone to conduct business. Um, and they learned about the latest news of the day. They discussed all matter of subjects. Um, This was the Greek word agora. The Athenian agora was that center of public and business life in the city. And it was the custom of Athenians to gather there to listen to speeches by people who felt that they had something to say. And then sometimes they would quiz them. Sometimes they would debate them on the validity of their ideas. I think that was a very interesting Place It was an exchange of ideas and of, opi- and of opinions, and it, it was a good thing. People could hear different perspectives. Today, we kind of, we've kind of lost that. Um, sometimes we feel like we're preaching to the choir all the time, and we're not uh, giving other people an alternative to what they might be hearing constantly, constantly, day after day. And we need to also be open to those other things coming in. We need to show people that we're willing to hear them if they feel that they have something valid to say. So most of the folks here that you would find in the marketplace were folks who were kind of caught up uh, in the idolatry of the city and basically I would call them victims of its ugly grip on society. And isn't that really the result always of a culture gone bad. Many people that didn't have the means or the education or the, the financial uh, backing, uh, they had no way of breaking free from the decadence that was all around them. Uh, of course, the elite did. They had opportunities. They had the education. They could go somewhere else and they, or they could cl- uh, cloister in their own uh, palaces and not have to be concerned about that. They could send someone to the marketplace to pick up all of their goods and never have to interact with society and its decadence. But these people didn't have that opportunity. Yet Paul knew that many of those residents that were in the marketplace at the time would never actually find themselves in the synagogue. So he preached the word in the synagogue where he knew he would find religious people, quote-unquote, religious people who also needed to hear the truth of the gospel if they were caught up in their religiosity. But he knew that many people would never find themselves in a synagogue. So he would have to bring the message to where they were. As believers, we have that charge also before us. Many people will never set foot in this this church to hear a, a sermon, to hear a message but i can attest to the fact that since we've started facebook live and live stream we've had hundreds of people hearing the message that never ever would have heard it before isn't that awesome isn't it, praise the lord that we have this technology that we can reach out to those who would never ever set foot in this building and maybe one day they will maybe one day they get saved and they want to come out and visit and we welcome them with with open arms but We can't expect that everyone will make their way into a church building because this is where we find the remedy for the lost and the hopeless in society. So the church needs to go to the world. The third group that Paul had an opportunity to preach to were the philosophers of the day. Now, these were men who were able to escape the idolatry that infected a lot of the people around them, but they weren't, it was, it was pretty much a mindset that they had, but they weren't fully convinced that God, as, especially as demonstrated by the religious people that they encountered, was the way to a better life. Now, isn't that a shame that They may have encountered religious people in their day, but never been convinced that God was better than what they were worshiping, the true God. So in verses 18 and 19, it's written, then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems like a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. I read read one commentary that that said that because he said here he preached um, a proclaimer of foreign gods, plural, that they thought Jesus was a God and resurrection was another God because they had gods to all kinds of emotions and uh, and, uh, events and activities. They had gods to everything. So they may have thought that Jesus was a God and this resurrection was another God. But Paul was very careful here as he spoke to these philosophers, that he didn't give his philosophical viewpoint. That he didn't just add another philosophy to the, to the uh, list of philosophies that people followed at that time for people to choose one or the other. They had enough of that all around them at the time. And look where it led them. So... Two types of philosophers are mentioned in these verses, Epicureans and Stoics. Epicureans are ones who followed this philosopher Epicurus, and they believed that life was only to be lived for the pleasure that could be derived every day. The Epicureans pursued pleasure as their chief purpose in the world, and they valued it above everything else. And they valued, most of all, the pleasure of a peaceful life, free from pain, disturbing passions and superstitious fears, including the fear of death. They believed that their purpose in life was to be happy, was to be prosperous, was to be free of stress and pain. And it was, it's kind of why the prosperity gospel preachers today appeal to so many people, right? Because they preach kind of the same message, it was the philosophy of First Corinthians fifteen thirty two. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It, it. I'm reminded of King Solomon when he wrote Ecclesiastes. How, if you know, if you know the story, King Solomon was the richest man who ever lived, who may have ever lived, if if we add up all that he had, even in today's uh, today's economy. But he was also called the wisest man who ever lived, and he wrote um, many of the uh, proverbs, and he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. But when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, he was kind of in a he was kind of in a bad spot. He was he was still searching. He was still searching for things, and he experimented with a lot of things to try to find pleasure, to try to find fulfillness, to try to find a way of filling all of his needs and his wants. And I'm going to give you a picture of what Solomon did to try to fulfill himself. And it says in uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Solomon says, and I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity or empty. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold of folly, till I, which is foolishness, till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I... I made myself gardens and orchards and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and special treasures of kings of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers. He had his own choir, his own entertainment, uh, the delights of, of the sons of men and musical instruments, his own orchestra of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. And all my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep it from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure for my heart rejoiced in all my labor and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked at all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled and indeed all was vanity and grasping for their wind. There was no profit under the sun. Solomon tried everything. He tried everything to please himself to make himself happy. And none of it worked. It was grasping for the wind. See, when I taught through Ecclesiastes, I said, "Isn't it? aren't we fortunate that Solomon did the test? Solomon performed the experiment. So we don't have to strive for all of those things because we know in the end it's never going to bring us happiness. It's only going to leave us empty. The Epicurean had this mindset. And though he wasn't necessarily an atheist, he lived as if he believes that God didn't exist, either to bless or to curse. He's a person who chooses to ignore God's authority over his life. He saw God as an absentee landlord who's not really active in his creation. And this other group of philosophers, the Stoics, they were, philosophers, they were followers of Zeno. They were pantheists. They believed that everything was God, that he doesn't exist as a separate entity, but is in the rocks and the trees and every material thing. They also believed in the certainty of knowledge, which could be obtained through the use of human reason. Their attitude toward life was, whatever will be, will be. Don't get over emotional, either about tragedy or happiness. Kind of apathy was the way to go for them. Um, you may recognize people today who have this philosophy. You know, they, they say, well, everything happens because of fate. Some call it the universe. Well, that's what the universe has just doled out to me. And whatever happens, happens. And they have no emotions one way or the, or the other. There's a problem, though, with both of these and also all other man-made philosophies. And when we went through what they meant, we could see some virtue to some of them, right? We could see some redeeming qualities to some of them. But what's, what's the one thing that they omit from their philosophy? That's God. That's God. God is the center of all wisdom. God is the one that we need to give glory to. God is the one who's going to bestow upon us blessings as he sees fit according to his perfect will for our lives. And instead of giving the honor to God, they were giving the honor to other men. You know, Proverbs 1.7 tells us, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Every philosophy, whether ancient or modern, endeavors to lead a person to a fulfilled life. The motivation may be honorable, but the result can be disastrous because it usually drives a person away from God. And not toward God. Both the groups dismissed Paul as a babbler. Um, but other philosophers might have been interested in what Paul had to say. You know, I know when we speak, not everyone wants to necessarily hear what we have to say about Jesus. In any group, there may be some that are willing to hear and some that will just uh, dismiss you as a babbler. Um, But Paul said that they said that Paul was proclaiming foreign gods, foreign gods. Why would they think that? Well, because they had all these gods and this was a new God, Jesus, who they'd never heard of before. And also that the message of the gospel might have been just too simple for them, for their highly educated minds to comprehend. Many people today believe that the complex questions in life, like the purpose of life or the salvation of mankind, requires complex answers. And Paul was an educated man, but he was also able to bring a message that resonated with the people. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul speaks about this. He says in verse 21 through 24, For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to, the, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Jews sought after the power. Uh, They thought that because they were the chosen people based on their heritage, that they had the power, they had an advantage to getting to God. Greeks thought they had an advantage, right, because of their education and their culture. Paul told them that God reveals himself in the simplicity of the gospel message And it's for everyone. It's not for special interest groups. It's not for the highly educated or the rich or the wealthy. This message of the gospel is for all. Amen. So, we ready to get into his his preaching? So this is the view, if we look at the Mars Hill view. This is is from um, ancient... Google Maps. Did, you didn't know they had Google Maps back then, right? So I said, let me give, uh, let me try to bring, let me try to bring this to today, so people can understand the distance. So that's a person walking. It took him 26 minutes to walk from all of those three spots. So uh, he taught from Mars Hill, which is on the left, in the red with the red arrow, or Aragopis, Aragopagus Hill. But you can actually see the Acropolis on the right bottom. And you could see the, uh, um, the marketplace in Athens, which would be on the top left there. So he had this view, this awesome view. If you go online, you can see, and there's still monuments there. There's still Paul's, part of Paul's message in, inscribed there on Mars Hill. It's pretty neat. Um, it's not far from these two locations. And it was kind of where they met. Uh, in the marketplace, but it's also where they met for civil, criminal, and religious matters. Um, And at the time that Paul was there, it remained a really important meeting place um, where philosophy and religion and law and other things were discussed. So those who were intrigued by Paul's message, not the religious leaders who thought they had it all together, and not these philosophers who thought that Paul was preaching some kind of babble, but some who were maybe interested or curious about what Paul had to say. He said, why don't you come, to, uh, come with us and we'll go here and we'll talk about it. So in verses 19 through 21, it says, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what, thi- what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear of some new thing. So it's pretty interesting. So they were curious, right? They were interested in what Paul had to say. They were intrigued by hearing some of the things that he was talking about. But they really weren't interested in a relationship with God. They were kind of just, they were just curious. And their interest was piqued until the next new thing came along. And I can relate that really to our culture today. We're in this fast food type of culture where, you know, something's really hot for uh, trending uh, right now. And next week, you forget about it. People move on to the next best thing, right? Uh, Whether it's politics or religion or a culture or society's uh, norms, whatever it is, we move on so quickly, don't we? From one thing to another. And so these people were kind of looking for that next next thing that was trending at the time. They viewed Paul's teaching as just the newest philosophy that was around. And so let's let's hear about it. And let's maybe you'll satisfy our itching ears, Paul, for something new that we've been missing. Paul warned young Timothy about this, and I think it's still I know it's still happening today in 2 Timothy 4 Paul, Paul tells Timothy preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long, long, suffering and teaching for the time will come when they will not endorse sound doctrine, but according to all their desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn away their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Now, this was a warning really to Christians um, that, that Paul was telling Timothy, be true to the word, Timothy, uh, show them where their error is in what they're hearing because they're very easily turned away to something else. And we can see that same thing happening today. Verses 22 and 23 back to Acts 17. It says, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Wow, what an open door. Imagine going into the center of Jamesburg and, and seeing this, this, plaque to the unknown God it would be like I know that God I know who it is I want to proclaim him to you it was like Paul saw this this open door to to reveal to them who they were missing many believe that Paul begins this sermon kind of with a compliment to his listeners saying I perceive that in all things you are very religious you know and then he goes on to tell them all the objects of their worship which would make people think that they were very religious people. Um, Some think it was more of an insult to call them religious because of all the the times that that Jesus went up against the religious leaders. But he said, I perceive in all things you are very religious. It might have been a way to just kind of get common ground with them, gain their trust so he could present the gospel. I think that's... An interesting way, and I think that's a common way that we can use to to bring people into the conversation. You know, it might have been a way for for him to show them that for all their religiosity, they still missed the mark in a relationship with God. Either way, I know that Paul gave this much thought because if he just came in and started to rebuke them for their idolatry, they probably would have rejected his message, right? So his desire here was to win them to Christ, not to humiliate them. So he used all these altars and statues to the false gods as a jumping off point, so to speak, to reveal the one true God. And he used this inscription to the unknown God to reveal that this was what they were searching for. And this is one of the most remarkable, I think, examples of evangelism that I've ever seen. Paul relates to the hearer in a way that they'll be open to what he's saying. This gives him an opportunity to reveal God to them. And we know that sometimes even religious people, sometimes the religion can drive you further from God instead of closer to him. So Paul goes on here in verses 24 and 25, and he starts to describe this God who they didn't know. Then he said, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So Paul said, look around. All these statues, all these temples, all these altars, to all these gods, they cannot contain the fullness of the one true God. It's not possible. They had all this beauty around them and it could never contain the true God. King Solomon prepared to build a temple, but he knew that God could not be contained within the walls of a building. In Second Chronicles 2, 6, he says, but who is able to build him a temple since heaven and, and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him? Who am I then that I should build him a temple except to burn sacrifice before him? So we gather in this building because it's a convenient place. When the air conditioning works in the summer, it's nice and cool. When the heat works in the winter, it's nice and warm. has comfortable seats. We gather here not because God is here to meet us, but we gather here to fellowship and corporate worship and to teach one another and to challenge one another in the things of God. But nothing material or physical, Could contain God. And there's nothing material or physical that God needs from us. He wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. And even when we give Him our hearts, it's not for His benefit, it's for our benefit, isn't it? Don't we realize that when that's finally happened? When we give Him our hearts? Anything we can make, the most beautiful statues, the most ornate churches, and they're beautiful. And it's nice to go and look at. But anything we can make to represent God will always fall miserably short, won't it? Because that's not the God that we serve. In verses 26 through 28, Paul goes on and he says, "...and he had made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord." in the hope that they, that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each of us for in him we live and move and have our being as also some of your own poets have said for we are also his offspring you know we think about what's going on in the world around us the division the racism and all of the violence That has sprung out of this. And we think about what this verse says. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. From one blood. One race. One human race. All descendants of Adam. Where do we get this concept of racial divisions? Where does it come from? It's not a biblical concept. It's a man-made theory. It's not true. We are all one from one blood, one race. And it's an evil theory because it seeks to divide people. And it seeks to deny the nature of God and his desire for all men to live together as one. And you know, what's going on around us, isn't it an awesome opportunity that we have to say, this is not what God intended. This racial division that we see in our country, this is not how God intended it. How, What an opportunity we have to engage people in conversations about the culture, about current events. It's a natural open door, isn't it? We, we will always want to look back at the difficulties or the trials or the troubles or the tragedies or, or the cultural wars that are going on. And we always, always want to look back and say, how was I able to take that and further the kingdom of God? We never want to look back with regret and say, oh, I missed an opportunity. People were talking about this and I didn't engage people for the culture of for the kingdom of God. We never want that to happen. So God, Paul used this culture around him to reveal the one who was mo- that, was, that they needed most. And that's God. Verse 27. I love this picture. Just think about. So they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. There are many people today, I feel, that are groping in the darkness for something. They may not even know what it is, but we can point them toward God. Deuteronomy 4.29 says, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all, all your soul. They were groping for something there, but God says, I'm not far from you. You seek me with all your heart, in sincerity, I'll be found. I'll be found. What an awesome promise. So he goes on here in verses 29 to 31. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, sons and daughters of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, Jesus Christ. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So again Paul uses what's around him the stone, the gold, the silver, the the statues, the art, the architecture, the temples uh, to the gods, the altars made to the gods. And he says, We ought not to think that God is like these stones or like this gold or like these statues. He's not. Paul had their attention here, and he was beginning to really confront their wrong ideas about God. He looked around and he saw all these statues and he, and he says the divine nature is the complete opposite of that. God is the complete opposite of the material world. When Jesus spoke in that beautiful story to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he said God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And that's why one of the commandments tells us not to make idols or images or statues and bow down to them. Right? But Paul now begins to kind of turn it a little bit. He's revealing this God to them. He's telling them who you're searching for, who you're groping for. I know who it is. The unknown God. I can reveal him to you. But he now wants, now he wants to show them that they need to do something. That they need to respond in some way. Because there will be a judgment coming for every single man, woman, and child. And Paul is trying to warn them of that judgment. This is really the first time in this whole sermon that he refers to specifically to Jesus and his resurrection. But it was always the focus of his preaching. To Paul, it's always... The focus In 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, he says, and I, and, bre- and I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The simple message of the gospel. Paul used all of these things to bring them to this one point which was his focus all along. And his statement to them was that one day all men, all men, including your respected philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, or the great warriors of your past like Alexander the Great, they will all have to stand before God in judgment. And Jesus Christ is the standard by which all men are judged. Some of them might have thought that their position in society or their education or their worldly experience or their financial status would would count toward their judgment when they went before the Lord, but none of it would. And as we kind of pull this all together today, Paul gets to this point where This sermon prompts a response. It demands a response. And there were three different responses or three different reactions to Paul's message. Verses 32 through 34. It tells us, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. While others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysus, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Some mocked. So this is one of the responses that he gets from his message. But this is kind of a defensive response, right? The message of the resurrection is a difficult message to swallow. It challenges our logic it requires us to put faith in something that we can't completely understand. But Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 that if we do not believe in the resurrection, then we are to be pitied. We are foolish as Christians. Because there was always this controversy over the resurrection. In verses 16 through 19 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, in other words, under the sun, this life, this earthly realm, if this is our only hope, then we above all are, we are of all men, the most pitiable. See, as much as Jesus Christ wants to give us an abundant life here, and he promised that, he promised an abundant life, it's so much more to know that we're going to be in eternity with him forever. Amen? You know, this life is abundant. We, we need not look at all of our troubles. We should focus sometimes more on our blessings that are many. And God promises to give us that abundant life. This life can be difficult, but we have the hope of eternity with God when we've put our faith in Christ. So some mocked, some mocked his message. That second response, it says, others said, we will hear you again on this matter. These were the procrastinators in the crowd. These are the ones who said, sounds good, Paul, but you know I have this other philosophy that I follow. Or you know I'm I'm really committed. I'm really kind of my heels are dug in, worshiping these gods. Um, I'm not ready yet. Have you heard people say I'm not ready yet when you when you bring the gospel message to them? When you say, "Oh man, what an opportunity God you put before me," and you're clear and you bring things come back to your mind, and you feel like there's no way that this person's going to walk away without receiving the lord and they say i'm i'm just not ready that's okay that's okay cuz these some of this crowd said I'll, we'll hear you again on this matter that's good that's good they didn't completely shut it down right many who hear this message today will put off making a decision for christ because i'm going to give an opportunity when we're done to make a decision for jesus maybe you need more information Maybe I didn't explain something well. Maybe you're concerned about your friends or your family who maybe wouldn't understand the decision you, you, you made. Maybe you need time to prepare. But can I say to you today, with all love in my heart, you may not have that other time to hear again. Those people that went away and said, we'll hear you again, Paul, on this matter, we don't know If they ever came back, right? We don't know. We we pretty much know Paul never made it back to Athens. So were they able to hear again? We don't know. Those in Athens assumed that they would have another opportunity, right? Those who are listening here in Jamesburg or in Monroe or wherever you're at watching the message, can you be sure that you'll have another opportunity to hear again? That those questions will be answered to your satisfaction. That maybe the little bit of doubt that you have in your mind will be satisfied. Can you be sure of that? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians six two, for he says, "In an acceptable time I have heard you; in the day of salvation I can I have helped you." Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day. Of salvation. Let's pray.
0: You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30pm and Sunday service begins at 10.30am. On Sundays we have Children's Church for all ages in addition to infant and and Nursery Care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.